2007, September 25th. Today is Lecture 25, Mapping Earth and Sky. Yesterday we talked about the shape of the Earth, measuring the Earth. How do we tell that the Earth is a sphere? Which was, of course, the subject of this morning's little finger exercise question. And then to go on to the much more difficult problem of how you measure the size of the Earth. Well, today I want to now kick it up a notch and actually ask the question, now that we've established what the shape of the Earth is, how do we actually map things on the surface of the Earth? And then by extension, how do we map things onto the sky? So now we're going to go just beyond a basic description of standing outside and looking up and saying, yeah, that, that group of stars kind of looks like a constellation. You know, the moon's over there and the sun's over there. But now actually trying to move towards quantifying that impression. Where can I make? How do I make measurements on the sky? And the process of making measurements on the sky has a very nice analogy for the same process we use for measuring locations on the Earth. So today's lecture is entitled Mapping Earth and Sky. I've got a beautiful medieval map of, in fact, the Earth and the sky here shown in our little cover picture. The key ideas today is we need, first of all, to have a common language for discussing positions on the surfaces of spheres, be it the sphere of the Earth or the apparent sphere of the sky. So we need to introduce angular units, how we measure angles. And of course, we're going to see, I hope as a review, the familiar units of degrees, minutes, and seconds of arc. We'll then start out by taking a more familiar system of units called the terrestrial coordinate system, the latitude and longitude system we use here on the Earth. Talk about how we talk about how we know where we are on the surface of the Earth, how we establish a coordinate system on that spherical surface. We'll then go on to discuss the analog of this terrestrial sphere, the celestial sphere. The stars all appear to be painted on a transparent celestial sphere centered on the Earth. It's an optical illusion because there really isn't a transparent crystalline sphere with the stars pasted on, but it looks that way, and so that provides us with an analog of latitude and longitude on the sky. We'll talk about the definition of the celestial poles and the equators because these become our principal reference points in the sky for talking about things like the motion of the sun, moon, and stars, as we'll do in the next couple days. And then we'll introduce the idea of declination, which is the celestial equivalent of latitude. Finally, this view of the celestial sphere with the Earth at the center is kind of a God's eye view of this sort of thing. We want to then ask, how does that translate onto just that part of the sky I can see when I'm standing at some location, like Columbus, on the surface of the Earth? What does my local sky look like? And that will give us all the pieces we need to now have a common language for describing the motions of objects in the night sky, which will take up the discussion of the next few lectures. So today we're going to establish, if you will, our coordinate systems for describing the objects we see in the sky. So there's an age-old problem, finding yourself. Where am I? I want to know where I am right now. Where is somewhere else? I'm here. How do I get to Los Angeles, for example? And how do I get there from here? What is the shortest path? What is the best path to take from point A to point B? Now, if the Earth was flat, that's a relatively simple thing to do. I could simply lay out a flat coordinate grid, maybe north, south, east, west, and rectilinear coordinates. Heck, I could even make this square grid of tiles here on the floor of my coordinate system and say, I'm here. I'm the center of the class. I'm at zero, zero. And you, the person standing out there next to the door, well, you're over you know, so many tiles that way up and so many tiles to the right and maybe so many meters up or down. 
I've now defined my position, that person's position. Actually, there's no one standing by the door. I didn't want to embarrass anybody. And I can figure out what the best path is to get from here to there. I might say the fastest path to shine my laser at them, a straight line, or maybe the path that I would run, which has to go around unless I want to crawl over the people here on the chairs. That's all straightforward if the Earth is flat. But what if the Earth is a sphere? This is a long-standing problem. Let's go back to the earliest maps we know of. For example, let's go back to Roman maps. Um, all of those maps always centered on a particular place, usually the place where they thought was the greatest place on Earth. might have been Babylon, Jerusalem, Rome, wherever. And then would describe how to get somewhere just kind of the way we just did there. Kind of treat the Earth as if it's a more or less flat Earth. And then say, well, if I want to go from Rome to Londinium, i got to kind of point myself that way and go that way. Well, okay, practically you've got to go up the Appian Way and head off somewhere else through the Gaulish territory, but you'd in the end figure out how to get from point A to point B, but you approximated the Earth as flat. But it was manifest by the 3rd century BC that the Earth was a sphere. And this flat Earth approximation, which is perfectly fine for small distances, falls apart when the distances become large. I can make a flat map of the Columbus campus, for example, and pretty much get away with saying, to get from here to the oval, go so far to the east, so far to the north, and I never have to worry about the curve of the Earth. I can even get away with that on the scale of the state of Ohio or even nearby neighboring states. If I want to get from here to, say, Michigan, I can tell you which way to go and never once have to invoke the fact that the Earth is a sphere. But once I start getting up to the scale of continents or between continents, the fact that the Earth of a sphere really matters, and I've got to come up with a different way of describing positions on the surface of the Earth. Here is an example of one of these old maps. This is the oldest known map that we know of to exist. There probably are older maps, but this is the one that we found and has survived. It comes from only 600 BC, surprisingly. A lot of earlier civilizations had writing back to about 3000 BC or more. But this is the oldest known map to, to survive. It's a Babylonian map known as the Sipur map. It's the oldest known map of the world. We know it's the world because we've been able to translate the cuneiform tablets here. Their world was basically centered on Babylon, which is more or less in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, somewhere in the neighborhood of, of Baghdad, modern Iraq. And this describes, interestingly, a flat earth. They describe the, the two rivers of the Tigris and Euphrates, and then consider this flat disk of an earth surrounded by a world ocean. You've seen this picture before. But once you go up to a spherical earth, you have to get beyond these kind of simple flat maps, and you've got to now start measuring out positions using angles. Because a sphere is that geometric surface formed from all points equidistant from a single center point, I can define on the surface of this curve, any path that I draw on the surface of the Earth is going to be an arc or portion of a circle. And that immediately tells me that I should be using not kilometers and things like that to specify relative positions, but I should be using angles measured relative to lines drawn from the center of the Earth. And the reason for doing that is whether my circle is as big as my thumb and forefinger held together or as big as the circle of the largest circle I can draw upon the Earth, 60 degrees is one-sixth of a circle in both cases. It scales in a nice, what we call, self-similar way. So it's a very convenient way to express coordinates because I never once have to tell you how big the Earth is exactly. It doesn't matter. If I'm 15 degrees of latitude away from, what, from Rome to some place in, in Central Africa, 
I'm 15 degrees of latitude whether the Earth is 28,000 kilometers in circumference or 40,000 kilometers in circumference. Now, how I transfer, how I convert degrees of latitude into kilometers, ah, that's when I need to know the radius of the Earth, but not before. So it makes for a simple system that's robust. If there's 15 degrees of latitude difference between two positions, it, that, that relationship does not change if I have to revise the size of the Earth. So it's a very natural system to use on the surface of spheres. So how do angular coordinates work? Well, a complete circle, as you may recall, is divided up into 360 degrees of arc. The Babylonians are responsible for this. That's why I picked the Sapor map, other than being the oldest one. It was the Babylonians who really invented our system of angular notation. It's them you got to blame for how weird it is. Why 360? Well, one of the reasons is 360 is within five of 365, the number of days in a year. The Babylonians were the first astronomers we knew of. So they thought, hey, 360 is a really cool number, and it's almost exactly the number of days in a complete solar year. So therefore, we've now got an angular system which has something to do with an astronomical time system. We're going to see this recur in this class. The second reason is the Babylonians hated fractions even more than you do. 360 is a wonderful number. It's evenly divisible by... <coughs> 3, 4, 5, 6, 8, 9, 10, 12, 15, 18, 20, 24, 30, 36, 40, 45, 60, 72, 90, 120, and 180 without ever once having to resort to fractions. So you can subdivide the number 360 very, very easily into lots and lots of, it, of small portions without ever having once to invent a fractional notation or even worse, oh good heavens, develop decimal notation. This is actually fairly useful. Remember, decimal notation that we're all used to is an invention, at least certainly in the West. In Europe, we didn't use decimal notation before the 12th century AD. So when we go back 3000 BC, they didn't have any decimal system anywhere in the world that we knew of. So this was a very simple way to, to reckon small divisions and many divisions without having to suddenly trip across the nasty requirement of fractions. Now the way you build up this, is, this also comes into play because of how you would actually build a scale to measure degrees. You start with a complete circle, and it's a very simple geometric construction to quarter that circle into 90-degree intervals. You then proceed to divide down the sides of the circle as much as possible until you get down to the smallest divisor that doesn't require resort to geometric fractions. So it's actually what we call the sexagesimal system. It's actually a base 60 system, not a base 10 system. Actually has a lot of computational convenience associated with it. That's why it survived for nearly four millennia. Even though it seems weird in this decimal age, decimal angular measurement systems have never caught on because this system actually is kind of convenient. So here to give you an idea of what a degree of arc is like, I've actually drawn two proper scale, one degree of arc. Imagine a circle so big it would overfill the front of this room. That's one tiny little notion of, of angle, one degree. One degree is probably about the same as, depending on the size of your fingers, a couple of your fingers held up in width at arm, arm's length. The width of a finger or two is about a degree of arc held at arm's length. Again, your, your mileage, like your fingers, may vary in that measurement. So it's actually a degree is also turns out to be, given the size of human fingers and the lengths of human arms, it's actually very close to a human scale unit. So it's a, it's a very useful system. Uh, you know, mathematically, practically, angles work well. 
But of course, some things are smaller than a degree. The moon and sun, for example, their diameters on the sky appear to be about a half a degree, round numbers. So you need some way to subdivide the degree. The way we do this, the Babylonians we don't know of did this. They basically formed fractions as a fraction of 60. But a different system has been developed by, in the first century AD by Claudius Ptolemy, the father of modern geogra geography, <coughs> who subdivided the degree as follows. He said, first of all, we want to do the first division of the degree is to divide one degree into 60 minutes of arc. Why do we call it a minute? From its Latin name, the pars minuta prima, the first small part of the degree, of which we've thrown away the word pars and prima, and we've left minuta, which in English gets warped into a minute. So it doesn't have anything to do with time. It has to do with being the first little part of a degree. In this case, 1 60th of a degree. One minute of arc is 1 60th of a degree. Now, you'll notice I've been somewhat careful in my language. I've said one minute of arc. That's because we also use the word minute to mean a 1 60th of an hour of time. So I'm going to be very, very careful in distinguishing between the minute of arc, 1 60th of a degree on a, surf, on a circle, with 1 60th of a hour of time. We'll call a minute of arc and a minute of time. So that gets us down to 1 60th of a degree. We then want to make an even finer subdivision. We want to now subdivide the degree into minutes. We now want to subdivide minutes into seconds. I want to divide them into the parti minutiae secundi, the second little part, of which in the Latin phrasing we've kept only the last word secunde and warped it into the English seconds of arc. And the way we notice primary, prima, secunde, secondary is a minute is a single tick mark, first prime, and seconds is a double prime. Double prime is a secunde in Latin. So I have a degree, 36 degrees. I write a little circle to remind me I'm talking about arc of a circle. The first division might be 15 minutes, 15 and a little tick mark, that's one prime, and then maybe 30 arc seconds, 30 double prime, 30 secundes, 30 seconds. So one second is also a base 60 division. So we take the, we take the circle, divide it up into 360 degrees. We take each degree and divide it up into 60 minutes of arc. And then we take each minute of arc and we divide that into 60 seconds of time. There I went. 60 seconds of arc. This means that the smallest practical unit in whole number integer seconds of arc is 1 3,600th of a degree. That's an angle so small that if I go back to my little model of one degree here on the screen, it's actually smaller than a pencil mark on this screen. So it gives me a way of very finely subdividing up the up angles. Now it turns out that these all have various applications in astronomy. Like I said, a degree is about the size of the sun and moon in the sky. In fact, the sun and moon are about a half a degree, about 30 minutes of arc across. A second of arc, uh, a minute of arc, excuse me, is about the smallest thing angularly that the human eye can resolve as a separate disk as opposed to a point. So for example, if you're going down the street and you see a street light, big red light street light in the distance, when that street light subtends an angle of one arc minute, 
you could not tell it from a street light that is a half an arc minute across. It's only when that street light, if your eyes are very good, you could tell the difference between one arc minute and two arc minutes. You could actually see that the two arc minute disc was bigger than one arc minute. Below one arc minute, the natural blurring from the optics in your eye and the atmosphere pretty much working together will prevent you from seeing a smaller angle. But if you now not get rid of the eye, if you will, or certainly supplement the eye with a telescope or a theodolite or some kind of optical instrument, then for normal terrestrial conditions, you could actually subdivide that down into as small as one second of arc from the ground. So each of these measurements, a minute of arc represents the limit of unaided human vision in acuity. One second of arc is approximately the limit of telescope-aided vision acuity. And one degree is, unless you're, you know, just can't see at all, that's about the size of the sun and moon in the sky. So again, these, even though these things are mathematically based, they were based on wanting these fractions of 60, which are easy to divide up, they actually are human scale units, and they're very useful to us. Okay, and of course, my other bit of mathematical trivia, why is it 60? It's them Babylonians again. They hated fractions, and 60 is divisible by 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 10, 12, 15, 20, and 30, without resort to fractions. It's a nice convenient number for getting a half, a third, a quarter, a fifth, a sixth, and so forth, without ever having to use a fraction. It's always whole numbers. They really dug that. Now the Babylonians subdivided the degree as degrees and fractions of 60. So if we go back to the oldest Babylonian angular records or even some, some geometry texts, they might express an angle like 7 and 14 sixtieths of a degree. You may remember me using that notation yesterday when we talked about Eratosthenes measuring the diameter of the Earth. Uh, there, I think it was 7 and 12 sixtieths of a degree or something like that. That's because Eratosthenes, working in the 3rd century BC, used a Babylonian angular, would have used a Babylonian angular system. Claudius Ptolemy introduced the modern notation of minutes and seconds. So I would take this same 7 and 14 sixtieths of a degree and write it out as this threefold notation of seven degrees, 14 minutes, zero, zero seconds. And this is the familiar way of notating an angular measurement in terms of degrees, minutes, and seconds. No decimal places are needed. At the time it was invented, no decimal place existed. So therefore, this is actually a hold -up. This is an ancient notation. This is actually probably the oldest mathematical notation in the world and still survives to this day. And it's still very useful. Well, now that we've got a system of angular units, let's apply it. Let's actually divide up a circle. And of course, the circle we want to divide up is the circle of the Earth. The Earth's surface is approximately a sphere. It's not a perfect sphere. There are mountains and ocean basins. And, and in fact, the Earth is actually kind of a lumpy sphere. It's actually a little flattened at the poles, a little bulgy at the equator. And it's kind of, kind of pear-shaped because of the way the continents and the oceans work. But Let's ignore that and just treat the Earth as if it was a perfect sphere. We can use a grid of arcs to define any location on the surface of this. I need two angles, one north-south, one east-west, to uniquely identify each position, give each position a unique set of coordinates. Now, the way we do this is we actually are going to exploit the fact that even though the Earth is a sphere and technically spheres have no axis of symmetry, ours is a sphere which is rotating about its axis, let me get the right direction here, once every 24 hours. So the rotation axis of the Earth to north and south breaks that symmetry. 
it gives me a unique direction. There is a place north and south that are this, the poles about which the Earth appears to rotate. And so I can define the north and south poles of the Earth. They are the rotation axis of the Earth. The equator is a great circle which divides the Earth exactly into two equal hemispherical halves with that plane of that equator perpendicular to the poles. So I can define the equator, so named because it divides the Earth into equal north and south halves. And then I use, that gives me my east-west great circle. Now I need a north-south great circle. And this, we call it a meridian. I make a meridional cut, which is now a great circle that passes from pole to pole, cutting across the equator at a 90 degree or right angle. And then, of course, continuing around the backside of the Earth here. I don't have a transparent Earth, so you can't quite see it. Now, the equator is one and only one circle, because there's only one circle, one plane, that will evenly divide the Earth into separate north and south hemispheres. But the meridian, I could draw in any of a number of directions and cut through each position on the Earth. So anywhere on the Earth, here's up somewhere up in Nova Scotia, or down here in Columbus, or out in Los Angeles, I can draw a single unique meridian that Los Angeles lies upon. So this gives us the first part of our terrestrial coordinate system. Is I start out with the equator, which defines the division between north and south, and the meridian, which basically cuts the Earth into east and west halves, but now defines my north-south line. So I have east-west, north-south. This allows me to define a system of latitude and longitude. So now what I've drawn is the Earth here, a nice little view. So we're looking sort of obliquely from the north here. I've got the North Pole, the South Pole would extend down below here. I've drawn now a grid of lines of constant, uh, lines of meridian lines here, all that converge passing through the poles there. And I can define a single meridian, which I'm going to make special. And by modern convention, that special meridian, or the first meridian, is called the prime meridian. And it passes through Greenwich, England. This turns out to be a convention of the 19th century. It's when the British were the major sea power of the world. They held a convention to decide what the uniform set of geodetic coordinate systems, coordinate systems on the surface of the Earth, that would be used by all map makers and navigators to set up a common navigation system. Because they were the greatest navigators in the world at the time, they decided to make their observatory at Greenwich, just outside of London, be defined the position of the prime meridian. So now all measurements would be taken relative to this prime meridian. All of the meridians would then be referenced to it. If I wanted to find my position, I do need two numbers. The first of these is my longitude. How much I would, how much if I take my, long, my meridian that runs through my position, here for example, Columbus, Ohio, as the red dot here shown on the Earth map, how far would I have to swing the prime meridian rotated around the pole along the equator until I reach the meridian of Columbus. That defines my longitude. It's the angle measured east through west along the equator from the prime meridian to my meridian. That gives me my east-west position on the globe. The north-south position is, once I've gotten east to west along the equator to my meridian, I then march along my meridian north or south, in this case north, how many degrees north do I move along my meridian until I intersect my location? And that is called my latitude. 
So a position on the earth can be defined uniquely by a latitude and a longitude. Longitude is how much I have to rotate the prime meridian until it matches my meridian. And I rotate that east-west, so I talk about east or west longitude. And then once I've done that, how far do I have to move from the equator along my meridian to my position to measure my latitude? And in fact, the example shown here is a very simple point to a place up here. Actually, this is not exactly Columbus. It's someplace here in the United States. So, for example, if we wanted to do Columbus, Ohio, our latitude and longitude is approximately longitude 40 degrees west, latitude 40 degrees north. That means I start with the prime meridian, move 83 degrees. I don't know why that says 80. It should be 83. 83 degrees of west longitude, and then 40 degrees up my meridian to Columbus, Ohio. So we are at, hmm, minor typographical error, 30 degrees west longitude, 40 degrees north latitude. Now, a degree of latitude and longitude is a pretty big thing, so I want to finally subdivide this just a little bit, and then I can measure those angles more finely in minutes of arc and seconds of arc. Now, notice that there is a unique position along the meridian. There's also a place with the line as a circle smaller than the equator that defines everything that is on the 40th parallel of northern latitude. So if I go directly east-west from Columbus, I don't move along the equator. I move along a slightly smaller circle called my parallel. And in this case, because we are almost exactly 40 degrees north latitude, I'm moving along the 40th parallel. And that circles the Earth around here. So we have the equator and the prime meridian define the zero points of the coordinate system. My meridian defines my east-west position, and which parallel I'm upon along that meridian defines my latitude. The latitude and longitude uniquely defines my position. Nobody else is at 83 west, 40 north, then good old Columbus, Ohio. Here's, a, again, my favorite program, Google Earth. Here's a view of, of an aerial view of the campus. Up here is McPherson Laboratory. We're down here underneath this roof. If, in fact, I stood outside in a nice position on the, just on the uh, porchway out there, just outside the door, I can actually find out my position. It turns out that I am at 40 degrees north, zero arc minutes, eight seconds of arc from the equator, and I'm 83 degrees, zero, zero minutes, 43 arc seconds west of the prime meridian. I got these measurements by bringing in a portable global positioning system thing this morning and measuring my position. Now, it turns out that we're very, very close. Notice the zeros here. We're within a few seconds of arc of the exact 40th parallel and the exact 83rd meridian of longitude. There is a place on campus that actually has its position more accurately known than any other place in position. Here's the main library down here. There's a little place. Have you ever, any of you have seen the Latitude Stone? Go out on the Oval. Find the Latitude Stone. It's down here where Phoenix Park is. It's where the little... Um, See, there's the beginning of the oval there. I forget which one of these. University Hall, Bricker Halls along in here. If we zoom in on this point here, down to, that's not where the cross goes. Oh, well. That's exactly on the 40th parallel, 40 degrees, zero arc minutes, zero arc seconds. And at 83 degrees, zero minutes, 54 arc seconds west. Now, I would have thought, and here it is. Let's go zoom in on that now. This is a photograph taken during winter. Here, in fact, is the latitude stone on, on the oval. At that exact point there, this is resurveyed every year by various surveying classes on campus. Latitude 400, 
longitude 83054. And if you really want to know, it's 759.716 feet above sea level. Ooh, naughty, that should be meters, but you know, we're still in America. So this is a latitude stone. Go out with your sort of extra credit homework problem, although I don't know how I'll give you credit for it. Go out and find the latitude stone. I, it, I hope it isn't inside the construction fence. It might be. I haven't actually gone out and looked for it recently. Go out and find it. That's where you know exactly. If you want to know where you are, that's where you exactly are. Now, this got me really curious at one point. So I, I went out and looked at this, and I set my GPS receiver on it. I said, gee, this is kind of cool. Where's the 83rd meridian of longitude? Well, obviously, if I'm at 830054, where is it? Is it east or west of me? Anybody? Someone said the word out there. East. It's east of me because longitude is west, increasing to the west. So I said, okay, took my GPS. This was actually 15 degrees out this day. I did this back a couple winters ago. I said, I'm heading east. Let's go find it. Well, I discovered something really cool. This is outside the Wexner Center. I'm standing on the 40th parallel of latitude, northern latitude. 15th Avenue is approximately along the exact 40th parallel of latitude. Cool. This is almost exactly east-west. In fact, this little funny colored bit of concrete in the ground, I don't know if the architect intended that. That's exactly on the parallel. It doesn't, it's not labeled. There's other ones next to it. But right there in front of the Wexner Center, there you are looking out towards High Street and 15th. 15th, actually, it's a little bit of an angle here because the perspective gives you kind of some funniness here. The parallel actually runs off about this direction. But that's almost exactly east-west. Great. So there, and admittedly, I'm, I'm walking around campus looking at my GPS, and people are probably looking at me funny. I'm getting really excited about this. But I still wasn't at the 83rd, longi 83rd uh, meridian of longitude, so I went to go find it. So I went walking into the neighborhood. And what did I find? I thought, wow, this is great. Maybe there's a marker there. There's not a marker there. It's a nasty place. It's actually underneath this dumpster. I'm glad it was 15 degrees this day. I can't, I mean, rats might like this place, but ooh. So yeah, so it's about a half block north of 15th and about half block east of Summit. There is the exact intersection point between the 40th parallel of latitude and the 83rd west meridian of longitude. Which kind of points up that really our coordinate system is semi-arbitrary. After all, why Greenwich? Well, because that's who was in charge of the coordinate system. The French had a, their own coordinate system for a long time. As you might guess, it was centered on the Paris Observatory. The Germans had their system. It was centered on Berlin, and so on and so forth. We just agreed to stop having different systems of latitude and longitude, and the Brits, well, they organized a conference, so they won. But there's really nothing special about these places there's that may be special to a rat, but you know, it's not a very special place. Now, this system of finding latitude and longitude was introduced by Claudius Ptolemy back in the second century AD. And it was used throughout the world in the late classical period. But when the Roman Empire collapsed in the third or fourth century AD, the system was basically completely forgotten. It was like all that knowledge and buildup, all those millennia of geography was just erased. Well, not exactly erased, but it went into hiding for a while. In Europe, what we find through the Middle Ages, meaning up through about the 12th century AD, flat earth reappears and flat earth maps reappear. The maps we see have nowhere near the latitude and longitude sophistication. And in fact, the most common theme is a TO map who takes as its origin the city of Jerusalem. Very interesting. They chose the city of Jerusalem as the center of the world. 
Uh, Ptolemy was only rediscovered through Arabic translations, eventually making their way back into Europe in about the year 1300. Once Ptolemy's works on geography and astronomy made their way back into the West, the manifest utility of the spherical Earth, first of all, the truth of the spherical Earth, hammered itself home. People knew it, but this sort of backed it up really solidly. And then Ptolemy's coordinate system was so compellingly useful that it basically wiped out all the flat Earth maps in, in literally one go. You simply see in the historical record, flat Earth maps simply vanish from the literature after the rediscovery of Ptolemy's spherical system. Now, the prime meridian that we use now is Greenwich. Ptolemy had the Fortunate Isles, which we think is probably the Azores, but we're not 100% sure. <coughs> Here's an example of the very last flat Earth map, that one of the last flat Earth maps we know of. It's the famous Psalter map from the British Museum. It came from a medieval book of Psalms in the year 1250 AD. There is the center of the world, Jerusalem. The world is flat, circular, surrounded by a world ocean. And it takes a while of squinting at this map. You say, well, where's the Mediterranean? This map is turned on its side. North is over here to the left. West is down, south is to the right, and east is up. So there's the Mediterranean. Here's the Nile. And there is, in fact, the Danube. This is a very stylized map. All the cities of the world are noted. Why do I show this? Well, first of all, because it's really cool. Second, you'll notice this convention of, of arranging the map so it has east up. In Latin, east is orientalis. Therefore, this map has been correctly oriented. So our word oriented, to orient oneself, is to find east, to find the direction of the rising sun. So buried in our language is a bit of astronomy and a bit of history. But again, within about 50, 60 years after this map was made, it was the last of its kind. This is a map from 60 years later. It is a map based on the map of Ptolemy. It doesn't show a complete sphere because this, in fact, is the known world of Claudius Ptolemy. And now we have the normal orientation, north up, west over here to the left, east to the right, south down. We have the large Indian Ocean over here, the Mare Indicum, the Mediterranean Sea, England, Ireland, the unknown frozen north, and the beginnings of the Western Ocean. Fifty years after that Psalter map, completely replaced by a very familiar to us in the modern age grid of latitude and longitude. Well, having done this on the Earth, we now want to project this onto the sky. And so we can define, like the Earth, we can define a celestial sphere. The sky, when you're standing from any location on the Earth, looks like a sphere centered upon the Earth that's just out of reach. So we can draw the celestial sphere as, a, as an imaginary sphere that we're going to project all the stars onto, placing the Earth at the center. The Earth's equator can be extended outwards in a plane, and where that plane cuts the celestial sphere, we define the celestial equator. It's simply the projection of the Earth's equator onto the celestial sphere. The north and south Earth poles can similarly also be extended to the north and south. And where they intersect the celestial sphere to the north and south, they define the north celestial poles and the south celestial poles. So we start our subdivision of the sphere of the sky exactly the same way we started the subdivision of the Earth. We cut it in half at the equator, and we mark two pinprick points on the north pole and the south pole. And we use this to define positions upon the sky. So we have a celestial equator, a celestial north pole, and a celestial south pole. 
So just like on the sky, the analog of measuring things on angles, we can do the same here on Earth. We can do the same thing up on the sky. So for example, I can draw, we have a celestial equator. I pick a star. I can draw the celestial meridian that passes through it. And I've only drawn the first half of the circle here. It obviously would be a great circle extending through the other half of the sky. So this defines a position north-south, east-west on the sky. It's a great circle running from the north celestial pole to the south celestial pole. I can define an analog of latitude called declination. Declination is the angle along the celestial meridian to the object, the star, the planet, the sun, or the moon, measured from the celestial equator. And I measure it in degrees. So I might walk out and see Sirius the dog star, and maybe Sirius the dog star has a declination of about 30 degrees. I go, oh, it's 30 degrees above the celestial equator. So I can measure a declination as an analog of latitude. But you'll notice there's a wee problem here. What about the celestial equivalent of longitude? Hmm. We could put that on the Earth like at the Fortunate Isles or Greenwich, but the sky is moving. The stars rise in the east and set in the west. So where do I set my zero point for longitude? Well, I can't do that yet because I haven't yet got a conception of time. So today, we're only going to get halfway through the celestial sphere. We have to get declination, but not the other coordinate. Now, if I'm standing on the Earth, however, I don't see a beautiful celestial sphere in all directions because the ground is getting in my way. The local sky is such that I only see half the sky at any given instant. So my local coordinates are north, south, east, and west. I simply lay out that terrestrial latitude and longitude grid, and I can define my coordinate position of, in fact, I know it, north, south, east, and west. So now I'm oriented. And I know straight up. Straight up is called my zenith. There's also a nadir, which is the point straight down through the Earth. But it's astronomically irrelevant here because I can't see any stars. So all the stars, the moon, the sun, the planets that I can see will only be in this half sphere above the ground. Now that looks pretty simple, but remember that this local sky is on an Earth and the Earth is turning on its axis. So where you see, what half of the sky you see depends upon where you are on the Earth, your latitude and longitude, and what time and date it is. So in order to get a full set of coordinates, we need a notion of date and time, which we're going to have to develop in subsequent lectures. Now the effect of this is that objects as seen from a rotating Earth appear to rise in the east and set in the west as the Earth rotates. So this means our coordinate system for celestial coordinates is suddenly going to get a lot more complicated. Here's now the celestial sphere viewed from outside the Earth in the center. But here now, at the 40th parallel of latitude in Columbus, this is that section of the celestial sphere that I can see. The green line here is the extension of my horizon. I can see nothing below my horizon. So that's what all the orange sphere is. So at any given instant, I see exactly half the sky. The zenith is basically the line from the center of the Earth up through me, straight up. This angle from, this, from the equator up to that line is my latitude. Ah, so now I can translate the section of the celestial sphere that I see onto my local sphere. 
and that becomes this circle. So now I'm standing in the middle here, north, south, east, and west. The north celestial pole, because I'm standing at northern latitudes, is above my northern horizon. And my celestial equator is this tilted half circle above my southern horizon. There's a magic angle in here. The angle between my north compass point and the north celestial pole is my latitude. And now I've closed the circle. We now can place the terrestrial coordinate system where I am matters. That's why we spend so much time talking about it. The celestial coordinate system is now oriented with respect to that terrestrial coordinate system of a north celestial pole, a celestial equator, my zenith, my horizon, and my four compass points. To close the circle, all I need now is a description of somehow of time. And to measure time, I need to take into account the fact the heavens appear to be in motion. And that's the topic that we'll pick up tomorrow.